What's up? This is Founders Talk. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Adam Stachowiak. If you're new here, head to founderstalk.fm and subscribe. If you've been here before, thanks for coming back. Here on Founders Talk, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and what it takes to build and run their business. Today, I'm joined by Evan Kaplan, CEO of Influx Data. Evan's journey to become CEO was not by way of founder in this company. Evan has founded several companies in the past, and he's been in a CEO position for more than 22 years. But Influx Data was founded by Paul Dix, and Paul knew years ago that his role, his best role, was to lead the technical and product direction of the company, which led him to Evan. Today, we share that story, as well as a glimpse into operating the business that's built a de facto platform for building time-series applications with deep roots in open source. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Render. Render is a unified platform to build and run all your apps and websites with FreeSSL, a global CDN, private networks, and auto deploys from Git. They handle everything from simple static sites to complex apps with dozens of microservices. There are a ton of use cases for Render, but the sweet spot I want to focus on right now is how they're able to offer a better, more streamlined approach to hosting modern apps at a better price point. For example, Heroku is known to be quite expensive at scale, and alternatives like AWS and Kubernetes require significant time and management overhead for early-stage startups. Render is built for modern applications and offers everything you need out of the box. One-click scaling, zero downtime deploys, built-in SSL, private networking, managed databases, secrets and configuration management, persistent block storage, and infrastructure's code. Render is powerful and it's easy to use, Automate your cloud hosting with Render at render.com slash changelog. The best part, our listeners get $100 in credit, and all that begins at render.com slash changelog. Again, render.com slash changelog. Evan, welcome to Founders Talk. It's been, I think, a little while. We've had you coming on the show for a bit. We had to reschedule a couple of times. But, man, I'm such a fan of Influx Data, such a fan of what you guys are doing over there, really. And I'm just so happy to have you on the show today. So welcome. That's great, Adam. Thanks for having me, man. Looking forward to it myself. You know, there's a couple different lenses of this show. We frame the journey of the entrepreneur, the founder, the CEO. There's some framing around that, too, where... CEOs tend to have a different role than really anybody else in the organization. They tend to be isolated to some degree because they carry a lot of the troubles and the challenges and the stresses. So really the show can go a lot of different directions. We can go in a product direction. We can talk about the ups and downs of being a CEO, the isolation, you know, or even the possibility of being a CEO. But really just, you know, kind of going in and out of the different lenses from product vision to leading the company to, all the different things, but I know a little bit about your story with Influx Data. I'd like to go back, maybe if you agree that's the beginning for your story really is when you met Paul initially. You know, you can kind of tell me that that journey there with your Trinity Ventures, maybe even some of the struggles that kind of preceded that, which was your prior CEO roles. I mean, you've been a CEO for 
22 plus years from my math. So yeah. help me, you know, help me understand, like you've been a CEO for a while. So you've got to have some stories. So let's do that. I do have some stories, man. When I take you back a little bit about my history and then how I, how I show up meeting Paul and at Influx and all the dynamics around it. So my background is I'm a native New Yorker and I moved to the West Coast because I was really interested in climbing and skiing. And, and I didn't have a real job until late 20s. I had been real job being, I had mostly been working for organizations like Outward Bound or guiding climbing or skiing or working with adjudicated youths or things like that. So totally nothing to do with tech, but always interested in tech and just, but just from a distance. My first job was working in aerospace, actually not doing anything technical, but doing management training and development. And then I did that for a year and got really into the technical side. And I, and I jumped into a program management role for flight computers, working closely with Boeing and Airbus and, and companies like that. And I just really enjoyed working with engineers and developers, software and hardware. And I had a climbing buddy who had started a company in Seattle. Probably people don't know that anymore. It's now part of a roll-up. It's called WRQ. It's a super fast-growing company. And I got involved with them, and I joined them, and was around for the early days of TCPIP. Okay. And so when it first started coming up in enterprise networks and early early stuff like that, and was involved with the licensing of the original Spyglass browsers for, for that sort of stuff. So that sort of places me in age and time, which you know makes me old as old. Let's just call it old. The, um, <laughs> experience, I like to say. I like to say experience. Yeah, experience. That's a nice way to put it. And then I, um, I started a company out of my house with a friend of mine to do the first SSL VPNs, very much in networking and security, layer five VPNs built on SSL, and went on a really wild ride with that, kind of a unicorn of our day. And then post the 2000, we lost everything and rebuilt it again and mm. eventually sold it to a company called SonicWall, part of Dell. I used to be in IT and sold Sonic Wall firewalls. Yeah, yeah, they still they're still around. Yeah, hardware appliances. I'm, I mean, that's they're part of Dell now. Yeah, this is a uh, 2005 for me. So I mean, not too long ago, but feels like ages for me. 2004, 2005. Yeah, by that I was there. I was uh, that was just before we sold the company. But, okay. So that was a wild ride. It was you know pretty inflated during the first part, pretty deflated after the second part, but working through that and. I would say earning stripes and maturity as a CEO and going through it. Super proud. We had a great team there. The company was called Aventail. Mm -hmm. And then um, I took a year off and moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming and did some more skiing and stuff like that. With my, at that point, we had a two and three-year-old. And then I got an offer here in the Bay Area to run a public company um, focused on global Wi-Fi called iPass. And that was a difficult process, a really interesting process of a change of a business model and a bunch of other stuff and, and activist shareholders and developing all kinds of experience as a CEO that I probably didn't need, but got anyway. And um, it wasn't a ton of fun, but met some really wonderful people and moved to the Bay Area from Seattle and enjoyed that. And then during the break from that, I went to Nepal after the earthquakes and helped out and then worked at Trinity as an executive in residence, which is where my path crossed with Paul. Mm -hmm. And so I think Paul and I bonded originally on what this entrepreneurial journey is about. Really the ups and the downs and the 
the fundraising and all the things it takes to sort of pull a company from nothing. And I was super impressed with Paul. And at that time, his co-founder, Todd, what they had what they had been able to do, they were about 20 people. And so while I was at Trinity, I was advising them. And then they asked if I would join as CEO. And it wasn't my plan at that point to join that early stage of company. But, but there were four or five things I really, really liked about Influx that I really laid the foundation for it. One was, it's pretty hard for a CEO to come in where a founder is. It's a pretty narrow path to do that successfully. And it takes a fair amount of emotional maturity on both sides of the equation. With Paul particularly, I felt like we could do that. And turns out, five years later, we have been able to do that really well. Yeah. But it's a tricky, tricky thing and, and underestimated. And, and, um, and I think the benefit there, I was a founder. So you had your stripes, as you said, right? You had your, yeah. you got your scars and your stripes. Yeah. I didn't see myself as a CEO for hire. Mm -hmm. I saw myself as a partner. And so Paul and I struck up this agreement that I think has held us really well for a long time now, which is he's never treated me as anything but a founder, even though I'm not technically. And I've never treated as anything but a partner. I don't make any major decisions mm. about the product, the company, without he and I being in alignment about it, which is wonderful because we fight, we make fun of each other, we do we do a lot of stuff together, but we've maintained that relationship. That's good. And it's actually been really great. And so you've had Paul on your podcast, so you know. Yeah. Big fan of Paul. I like his, uh, how he looks at things. I like, you know, just how he decision makes. I like the way he thinks about open source. I like the way he thinks about business and the community and how it all intertwines you know, the necessity of all parts, really, to get to where we all want to go. And that's what I love most about Paul. Yeah, I think he does a really, he does a really nice job with, I think, being an advocate in the, in the open source community. It's sort of, you know, Paul will always say is, hey, strong opinions loosely held. Yeah. And that works really well between us, which is, um, but it's caused, we've had to make some major decisions along the way together, which have really cemented our partnership. Mm. So coming back to, the, you know, the influx thing is when I was running the public company, we had a couple of pretty significant open source projects. One was based on Mongo, was pretty ad hoc, and we're plug and played, and we're able to be very successful. And one was based on, you know, the Hadoop infrastructure with Cloudera and a bunch of other open source components, and it was really difficult. Mm. It was a super difficult integration. And what happened in that process, I developed a lot of conviction about open source. And I also developed some conviction about how and how not to open source. And the thing that appealed to me about Influx at the time, it still does, was that sort of ease of use, the quickness, you know, following in the same footsteps as Mongo is, how quickly can a developer be productive? How quickly can they do stuff? Mm -hmm. How quickly can they build stuff? And so that really drew me in. And Paul had a really compelling vision around that, this notion of time to awesome, he called it. Is that right? Which has held the brand. I like that. Time to awesome. How does he frame time to awesome? What does that mean? He frames it in the context of, if you ask him, he goes back to his Ruby on Rails days and how, um, you know, that framework helped people get quickly, do stuff very quickly and how it empowered developers. And that matched with my, my personality theory, which was, is something like people at work want to feel powerful. They want to feel effective and they want to feel like the tools are using or helping them. And Paul had this view that, he could create a time series platform was that kind of effective tool that very quickly you could be, 
you can be up and running, build something in a schemaless fashion, find it highly pragmatic, but allow it to scale later also. Mm -hmm. That was a unique point of view he had. And um, I think he executed really well. I know he executed it really well. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned some convictions about open source. What were what were the, the positives, I suppose, and negatives to those convictions? You know, I think um, it became clear to me that there was, particularly as the data and the infrastructure framework, it was, there was a huge displacement going to happen from, you know, what was classic. When we're doing most of my career, there you could use Oracle and you could do DB2. And if you were super adventurous, you did Sybase or Informix. And obviously, over the last 15 years, starting with MySQL and the other database platforms, you saw the fragmentation of those franchises and you've seen the slow and sure, steady replacement mm -hmm. of those franchises too. And they're all open source. Yeah. The steady replacement is happening in the open source or open source based world. And so that became clear to me that the next generation of infrastructure was going to be built on open source. And then if you look at the cloud providers, what they, for better or worse, were starting to build on was open source, mm -hmm. whether it was Amazon and, you know, that's a controversial topic, but 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 the other platforms and things like that. Oh, let's go there as much as you want to. I mean, don't shy away from it if you got thoughts and feelings. You know, I don't have really, I don't have really strong feelings. It's just the factoids of yeah. Amazon taking advantage of the open source platforms to build their commercial platforms having a significant competitive advantage because the infrastructure costs to them are dramatically cheaper than anybody can. But I'm not willing to see that that's, that's, a, that's a competitive barrier that, that people can't get through because people are getting through it. If you look at Databricks with Spark, if you look at Confluent with Kafka, if you look at Mongo with Mongo, that there are competitors with each of the cloud providers for those offerings, but the brand names, the ones that have the open source community, are truly thriving as independents. Mm -hmm. That's certainly where we fit in that world. Even Elastic, they were probably the most hurt by this. Even they are thriving pretty well, yeah. very well as an independent. So I think, you know, the communities you build around this open source are more important than, than the fact that it's hosted on infrastructure as part of your Amazon account or your Azure account or whatever. That's what is our belief. One part of the conversation that we actually had, and Paul was a part of this as well, was the Amazon versus Elastic, essentially, you know, this this idea. And one of the opinions shared there from Adam Jacob was around, you know, essentially AWS being the marketing funnel for an open source project because they're just so massive and just so big. While they may compete with you, they're also giving you extreme brand distribution, you know, and so if you can win, and I even recall Paul talking about how with IOX and some future product that we might talk about here on the show today, that you're by design designing some of the futures of Influx Data by design to be competed with, you know, with, you know, Influx Data Cloud, for example, you know. And so I think there's some disadvantage there, but I think it's also important to talk about the advantages of AWS choosing Elastic or some sort of other thing. And sure, there, there definitely is some misuse there, but I think there's also an opportunity to say that's a a significantly larger audience that hears about my thing that would not have heard about it because open source is all about adoption. Adoption requires distribution. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I did actually listen to the Adams Jacobs podcast when you did it. Actually, Paul forwarded it to me and I listened to it. I have a bunch of thoughts about this, Adam, so tell me, cut me off. But I think there really is a different thing. I think the dynamic that I think at Chef, 
Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. That Chef had with Amazon was a strategic partnership. Exactly. And that sort of stuff. That is not the relationship that, that Elastic had, right? My view is that these, that Amazon's, I personally don't need Amazon's imprimatur to make our product successful. I need developers who are engaged in the community mm. who can see it. Now, we run our stuff on Amazon, so we definitely use their marketing partnership, Yeah, right? But I don't need Amazon to run it as a product for us to be successful. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put words in the mouth of Jay at Confluent or the folks at Mongo or, or Databricks, but... I would suggest that they probably need to be able to host it on their platform, but don't need them to run it to be successful. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a little bit overstated. That was probably, what, a year and a half ago when you did that, Adam? I don't remember. but That particular show, I believe, was earlier this year, if I recall correctly. Oh, was it that? Okay. All right. Yeah, it was. It's been a long two years, let's say, <laughs> Evan. So I'm, it was the last year. Was it this year? It was actually February this year. You know, So it was right after... Shy had come out with the blog post, Amazon, you know, not okay, this big proclamation, which I agree with. And we have a future episode release with Shy here on Founders Talk that is going to be awesome that we haven't had a chance to release yet. But, and I don't want to dwell too deeply on this, but, you know, what I want to focus on really is your particular challenges at Influx Data around open source and and this particular thing, you know, because from what I understand about Paul's vision of open source and, and for Influx, is to be permissive, right? And to be to be permissive, but then, you know, something he also mentioned on that show was, and maybe we're jumping the gun a little bit here, getting kind of into vision and product direction and maybe tactical advantages in how you do things, but he described a world where you have two teams inside of Influx Data, one working on the open source and one working on Influx Data, the IOX platform that he'd talked about as a future thing for you all. So I'm sure we'll talk about that, but he just talked about how, you can create a world that by design you can be competed with, but you have that advantage too because you're the creators of InfluxDB and everything else that goes along with that, Telegraph, et cetera. So, I mean, I want to understand from a leading an open source company, leading a company that's built upon open source, what are those challenges? What are those hurdles that you face? What are those decisions that you, Paul, and others have to make year by year, week by week to deliver to your customers into the open source world, but also thrive as a company? Yeah, it's a great, Adam, it's a great way to frame the question. And I think I could, you know, recent, you know, the, the, you brought up the IOC stuff. And so when I first started with Paul, I referred to that process of making decisions. But when I, we first started together, I had joined the company and I was thinking we didn't need to do much about monetization for a year, a year and a half while we worked on building the community and, and putting really good stuff out into the community. When I went to raise money back in 2000, this is 2016, the headlines in the venture world, which were on that path, and so we had to pay attention to that, yeah. were nobody in open source made money except Red Hat. That was the headline. Mm-hmm. And so... It was a time when Mongo had done down round, Couchbase had done a down round. It had been been a little bit of a blip in this open source rising tide, right? And so it was difficult. So Paul and I had to figure out how to monetize relatively quickly. We had, you know, we had much discussion. We went through a process. I talked to other CEOs at the time who were running open source companies. And we made the decision to monetize around open core. 
it wasn't what we wanted to do at the time, but we felt like we needed to do if we were going to keep the company going. Mm. We needed to find a way to monetize in order to raise capital, in order to show. And it was a bet the, it was a bet the company decision because if the community had died off or really reacted negatively, and they did for a little bit, there were some people, you know, the normal hacker news threads were pretty tough, right? Is, hey, you're taking out the scaling capability, not taking out, you're only putting in scaling into the closed source stuff. That caught, we caught some flack for that. But the community continued to grow and grow, still grow very fast. Would it have grown faster? Yeah, I think it would have grown faster if we would have put that closed source stuff in. But we had to make the choice to be open core. And the other part is, what if nobody was willing to buy based on that? And so both things turned out to be true. We grew pretty fast and they were willing to buy and the community grew. So that was a bet the company. But we never really wanted to be an open core company in that way. So we rode that model for a long period of time. But when it came to the next big decision about our software, which was IOX, about what we were gonna do, we continued to MIT license the core and all that sort of stuff. Paul, we had a habit of saying, make a decision when it needs to be made, but make a working decision as soon as you can. So we make a working decision about the way we're gonna approach this and all that. And on the licensing, the working decision was we would keep IOX open source. But I had some significant concerns about that because if you watch the other open source vendors during that period of time, Elastic came up with their with their licensing. You saw the secondary licensing, secondary licensing. Other people were doing it. It seemed like most everybody was trying to do AGPL writ large in 2020, you know, mm-hmm. some some sort of and you know, I have the former CEO of Mongo's on my board, who's a really a phenomenal board member. And so Talked a bunch about this, but but Paul and I eventually came to a decision with other folks at the team is we were going to do open source for IOX, complete, permissively licensed. And Paul's point of view, and I think this is what won the day for me, was if you can't compete on your own product and your own technology that you're doing the developing on, then you have a different problem. Now, I get it. There are structural advantages to cloud providers and things like that, but you should be able to compete. You should be able to build a development organization that's capable of innovating on top of your product. That was one point. The secondly is if you really want to be successful, then you have to build community around your stuff. If you're going to be open source, you can't be half open source. And anything, even the small things that inhibit community, Paul had, he was allergic to that. <laughs> even though, you know, you could argue with some of these secondary licenses, you get the source code, you get all this sort of stuff and all that. Paul's argument was the great projects started with complete open source, right? Whether it be Spark or whether it be Kubernetes or whether it be Linux or whether it be the great projects aren't there. Let's start out like we're going to build a great project. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was pretty clear thinking. I mean, I have to sit on it for a while because, you know, I have to make this business commercially viable too. But it's a really good process for us. This episode of Founders Talk is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 is a for developers, by developers identity platform built for the cloud era. They secure billions of logins every year. Identity is the front door of every user interaction and the login experience can make or break a user's first impression. 
Identity and authentication is never a set it and forget it thing. That means when teams decide to roll their own, they are taking on the full burden of constantly evolving industry standards, customer expectations, and data breach tactics, and they often don't have the time, expertise, or resources to meet those needs. This takes away from critical time needed to innovate and to improve their core product. Auth0 has solved this problem for every developer to give teams their time back and to make applications more secure. With Auth0 security, compliance, and industry standards, they're always up to date. Developers are free to provide the login options their users want with the security their application demands. Make login Auth0's problem not yours. Learn more at Auth0.com. Again, Auth0.com. We jumped ahead a little bit, but to rewind a tiny bit, uh, when it comes down to the way you came in as CEO, you mentioned this pathway where it's a narrow pathway to do it successfully, where you had a founder in place to come in as CEO next to that founder. And then you'd mentioned an agreement. I'd love to go back to that at some point. I'm curious about some of the details that might be in there that might be something we can extract, but just how you come down to making decisions day to day. Is it, you know, Evan CEO, Paul is... CTO and do you have challenging decision making? Like, how do you come to decisions like that? Even I think we we're comfortable with a process, right? And the process isn't just Paul and I. Obviously, it's other members of the team and other employees and things like that. And so, you know, it's my view if, is if I ever have to use power, I've already lost. Otherwise, if I have to say we're doing it this way because I'm the CEO. Yeah. If I ever come close to that, I'm saying, listen. <laughs> I'm going to make the call here. I need you to support me. If you can't support me, let's talk through it. But 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 that's the worst it ever gets. Yeah, I like that. I like that approach. It's very rarely a dictate. I've got kids, and so I've got 15 and 16-year-olds. You just can't use power that way. It just doesn't work, especially with the super smart people and qualified. And so and so I don't I don't really attempt it. And with Paul and I, it's, it's not even hard. It's like if Paul has a big idea and a big investment, like we moved to the total cloud native platform as the way to monetize, right? It was a big, big investment, a big bet in the company. It wasn't like I said, okay, Paul, let's just do that. I said, okay, you've got to sell the other constituents around the team. And then we've got to go sell our investors that this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things you you learn as years of doing the CEO thing is a big part of your job is, is selling. Yeah. And selling not in the bad pejorative way, but selling in a positive way, which is bringing people on board with you, whether it's investors, employees, or customers. How do you bring people on board? Yeah. That becomes the really important part. So, so, so with Paul and I, he has to bring me on board. I have to bring him on board. By the time the decision's made, neither of us gets to be, we're, oh, I, did, I wasn't really into that decision or it was off board. That doesn't happen. I like your framing around if you're using, you know, the title alone because chief executive officer is the is the role that makes the decisions. But it doesn't have to be, well, because I'm CEO, I say we go this way. You know, when you're using your title or your power in that way, I like how you say you you, you say you've already lost because I've got kids, too. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, if you juxtapose the two in parallel, if I have to force my way with anybody working with me, I have a business partner. If I have to force my way because of my role or his role. 
Same with kids. Well, you're doing this because dad says so. That that almost never works. It might work. And I've got younger kids. So I've got five. I've got less than two. And then uh, a 17-year-old. So a quite spectrum there. But wow. if ever I have to make a decision, it's because dad said so. I might win at five years old, but I lose at 17. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, For sure. I might win at, at five. Like he's five. I might win. Well, okay, dad. Cool. But 10, 12, 15, 17, I'm going to lose. And so that's when the awareness and the intellect comes in. And I've got my own power. I've got my own ways. I've got my own thoughts. I'm going to go my way. You, you, have, you have a great view of that if you have kids at that age range. I have a 15, 16-year-old. And it's, um, yeah. And so, yes. Yeah. I don't have that power anymore. And, and um, they're more likely to make fun of me than do anything else. But it actually goes to the core value of the company. And we spend a lot of time on values at our company, but it comes to a core value, which is humility, is I'm just not smart enough. And trusting that the people around the table and trying to gather the multiple perspectives and coming to that with some humility is really important. So if your cup's already full, then it's very hard for people to add. And so I try to take the approach, and we as a company try to take the approach that we want to face up to these challenges with humility. And so if that's the case, you can never be, you can't be dictatorial in the approach. It just doesn't work. Help me understand then, is there any details in the agreement that you'd come up with? Because you alluded to something. I'm not sure if there was details to surface or not, but I'd love to kind of know what made you feel comfortable coming on as CEO in this narrow pathway as you described it. Like what made you, between your relationship with Paul, what made you comfortable taking on the role and the challenge given your 22, I guess now with this CEO ship, but 22 years of experience leading. So first of all, there was no official agreement. We just, I think we operated together for, you know, for three, four months and we realized this is the implicit agreement. Mm -hmm. And so I think at some point I just said, this is, this is it. This is how we're doing it. I certainly, when I joined, you know, I'm coming, I was sitting at a venture firm and so it could easily feel like, uh, you know, investors are trying to tell you, you need a professional CEO, so get this one and all that sort of stuff. And so yeah. I've been the founder in those kind of discussions and um, super uncomfortable and anxiety provoking. And so it had to be Paul asking me and at the time the other co-founder, Todd, asking me and they did. And we had a number of dinners and we talked about it. And at some point you're just like, okay. Whatever. I'm going to plunge in. I like these guys. I like what they're doing. I should also say that that Paul and I were both into CrossFit, still are. And so we bonded around that stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about CrossFit, if anybody's into CrossFit, they can't stop talking about it. So that helped. Yeah. So there was a some symbiosis. Some You guys gelled very well, basically. You understood what he was trying to do. You weren't uh, suggesting it by force. Oh, hey, you're not CEO enough, Paul. No, definitely not. Yeah. Given the trajectory of Influx Data, though, this seems like a very wise choice to bring you on a CEO in that narrow pathway, as you mentioned, because you've been able to be commercially viable. You've been able to, to succeed. You've been able to fundraise. It seems like, you know, this is successful. I mean, for you and for the company, this choice six years ago. Yeah, certainly we're super proud of what we've been able to do. But it's easy for both Paul and I to see all the warts along the way. Mm. So neither one of us would say we're super successful, even though the business is doing quite well and we're growing quite fast. Both of us realized, mm -hmm. oh, we could have done this. Or we, you know, 
And so there's some of those dynamics. But no, yes. Yeah. I think it was a good choice for both of us. It worked out. I ask a, a few questions as a to prime the, the conversation, so to speak. And I asked you about successes. And you said, I tend to discount successes. And so because of what you just said, that I'm going to pull that in. You said, I tend to discount successes Yikes. and tend to focus on how I or we could do better. But I'm proud of navigating the difficult times. Can you extrapolate on on that? Why do you tend to see the challenges, I suppose, the, the you discount the successes? You know, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, I'm a celebrate the wins kind of person. That's why I frame that question like that, because I think you have to celebrate the wins. And I think it does take some effort to see the wins because sometimes you're just so focused on the horizon, right? That you, you kind of forget all the little narrow pathways and all the different things you've done to, to get there as a team, as an individual. And I'm just a, I'm personally a celebrate the wins kind of person. I feel like that really amps things up when you can see that and then also do it. Yeah. So I know this about myself for better or worse. And I would say generally for worse. So I would add them if, if given a choice of the kind of genetics or the kind of things that I'm born with or that sort of stuff, I would be a better celebrate the wins kind of person. But, you know, I anticipate the wins, I anticipate the wins, and when they happen, and they're, they're fleeting. And so, as opposed to I'm on to the next challenge, I can do better. But what I do do a pretty good job is, is make sure people know that about me. And so that I work with folks who make sure we celebrate the wins as a company, but we can always we can always do better. I think Paul and I are a little common that way. And so we tend to be, you know, self-reflective and critical. And so we're always trying to say, Better, 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 better. And so we lose some of that thread. And so I don't personally think it's a great quality of mine, but it's something I'm a, at least aware of to try to compensate for. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I there are specific times where I'll tell the team is like, okay, just remind me. We'll celebrate the wins. I, let's do it. Let's, you know, remind me. Let's, let's go. Mm-hmm. That's good too, though. I mean, because if you can recognize, I think that's a skill. That's something you're born with to, to recognize the wins and celebrate them. I think if you can recognize that you lack in that area, but you surround yourself with teammates that that see that clearly and can remind you of the wins, I think that's good too. You know, <laughs> tell me about the difficult times. What are you saying about? Uh, give me some of the examples of navigating some difficult times when you discount the successes and you navigate towards those things. Yeah. So. You know, I've, I've been through multiple turnarounds. So when 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 I started my own company and we thought we were we were really great, we had built a really great team, and then the, we were about to go public and working with bankers, and then 2000 hit, and all of a sudden we were burning a huge amount of cash and had to raise money in a really urgent fashion, and you know everything changed. Then I had to rebuild the company, reestablish a vision. I had to de-enroll employees. So I said earlier, it's really hard to enroll folks in that motion is, you know, when you bring employees on, but when you have to de-enroll them, it's even harder. Mm-hmm. And that was during a difficult time. And so we survived that. We rebuilt the business, you know, business, and then we were able to just to break it up and sell it in the right points and at least try to return some of the capital and make the best we could out of the situation. But that was, you know, it was a long hill to climb. And I would credit, you know, just an orientation I've been a climber, and I don't consider myself a climber much anymore, but I was a pretty serious climber when I was younger. And so that orientation of just staying with it, I often say that I'm not particularly talented, but I'm relentless. So working through those hard times, I take a lot of pride in honoring 
my investors, employees, and doing the best I can during those periods of time. So I take a lot of credit for that. Same thing happened in the public company turnaround is difficult and trying to do the same sorts of stuff. And so I'm aware of those those struggles and that sort of stuff. And in some ways, influx has been much easier than that because it's been a really nice ride in the right direction the whole time. Yeah. And knock on wood, that continues. I don't see any reason why I wouldn't. But um, so I take a lot of pride in, in doing that and go in, in working through difficulties. And I should take more pride in the successes. I just forget some reason they're more ephemeral to me. That's okay too. I mean, you know, we all have different ways we look at things, you know, I mean, clearly you've been successful. So it's working, Evan, don't stop. But as a position of encouragement, I would just say, you obviously see this, but for some reason I've gotten some really good benefit in slowing down enough to celebrate the wins because you could just get so bogged down in the, in the go, 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 or the, you know, the, the seemingly losses, even though there were wins, cause you can't really see the details of them. There's just a lot of value I've personally seen in that. So anytime I get a chance to advocate it, I like to do so. Yeah, you know, it's a philosophy of life, man. Yeah. That's really well said. And it's what, and I'm certainly better at it now than I was, you know, 25 years ago when I first took the CEO role and had all these illusions about what a CEO is. And, and so um, I'm certainly better at it now, but that's a lifelong journey for me. And so it's great to hear your point of view about it, that you, you've arrived at it. I think that's really healthy. Well, maybe I learned young. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've read a lot of books. I mean, I, I like to read things from people who are smarter than me, who've got better frameworks than me, that have uh, done the research and have the data and have analyzed it. You know, they maybe have used Influx to do it. So <laughs> I like to pay attention to those people because... You know, I just borrow a lot of things from a lot of people, Simon Sinek, Near Isle, a lot of different folks, you know, a lot of people who think just That's cool. James Clear is an example for habits around that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I think your attitude is the right one. I think that's right. And so the fact that you take your podcast and you advocate for it, it's a good reminder for me too. Yeah. I could be better at it. I'm not super proud. I'm just saying this is the way, you know. That's all right. Let's go into maybe some feedback loops then, because you'd mentioned this has been a fun ride in Influx Data and- Help me understand where the business is going right now. Where where are the successes that you see happening? I know you have Influx Cloud out there. I know that you've got the forthcoming IOX. Help me understand the direction of product. Yeah, that's great. And where success is coming from, from a commercial standpoint, from a community standpoint, whatever success is to you, help me. Let's extrapolate that. Yeah. So the big transition over the last few years has really been building a cloud native platform. And so... You know, we did not, um, we had a managed service cloud, still do, that's pretty successful and has large customers like Salesforce and Google and that stuff on it. But Paul particularly advocated, starting even longer ago, that, that the right model for the future is something like an Amazon native database or an Azure native database in which people are paying for reads, writes, queries. They pay for what they use. If developers find it useful, they build interesting things on it, and then they run it in the cloud. And then they only pay for what they use. And he thought that his view was that's the best way to monetize open source, right? There'll always be people in the open source world, of course, who won't want to use that, but but that's the best way to monetize if you're a company. And I think we're seeing that, you know, we're, uh, certainly the, the predecessor for us was Mongo Atlas doing that really well. It now represents, I think, more than 50% of their revenue and growing faster than, than that. And so we started out to build that. And that's, that is a core feature of our business. And that's going phenomenally well. And then IOX, 
the work on IOPS was, you know, after seven years of working on time series storage engines, realizing that there are always going to be issues around cardinality and performance and query performance and things like that, like you could do this way better. And so we started the IOX project and its relationship with Apache Arrow and the Parquet file format. And I thought it was a super clever way to go about it. We've invested in that now for for well over two years and, and we're super excited that that will be an accelerant to the cloud. But we don't get to just be cloud because a lot of our business and a growing portion of our business is in IoT. Most IoT architectures have uh, an edge and cloud, sort of a two-tier or even a three-tier architecture of local local storage and analytics. And so building that edge capability and the on-prem capability continues to be in the raw open source. The fact that we continue to produce new open source that people will use at the edge or in the enterprise and that sort of stuff. All these things come together into what we view as our competitive advantage, a comprehensive platform. Cloud native, at the edge, in the enterprise, being able to use this all together with a common API and that sort of stuff. So that's our view of where our tech goes. Mm -hmm. In terms of where the market goes, that to me, that's what's super exciting is, listen, obviously sensors are getting cheaper and cheaper. Um, we're, we're sensorifying all the physical world in every way, shape and form. Whether it's, you know, the 12 sensors I have on my body from this Apple Watch to the Whoop Band to the, <laughs> to the Aura Ring to, you know, to whatever. They're not slowing down to whether it's your car or your home or your, your new Tesla Powerwall. Whatever you're doing, right, we're seeing the physical world being instrumented in really meaningful ways and building that into, you know, sort of into the broader. I think we are well positioned for that because... You know, the lingua franca of IoT is time series. Mm -hmm. It's pressure, volume, temperature, humidity, light, whatever it is. What happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? And that kind of data, super fast processing in real time. So we're super excited about that and having the vehicles to serve it. So that's what's driving our, our product vision, things like that. And continual foundation and open source. So when you think about something like uh, the aspect of, of observability, for example, Influx data, influx DB is beyond simply just observability in terms of infra or cloud, like say Grafana might be where it's really focused on the DevOps world. Influx is really focused on literally the global world, all the different sensors, not simply just a slice or sliver of it. And that's what makes your business so multifaceted, not just simply cloud, but also edge. That's exactly. And I think that distinction between DevOps and developers is a pretty significant distinction for us. Yeah. We want people, particularly in the cloud platform, but on Influx, you know, on Influx DB at the edge is we want to build stuff, right? Right. And observability is something you build. Don't get me wrong, but there are a lot of good off-the-shelf products that do observability, right? We want people to build applications that run their businesses. Right. And that tends to be a pure developer with a wide variety of stuff. Now, don't get me wrong, we have a we have a fair amount of business in the observability world, specifically as do with metrics at scale, because we do that pretty much better than anybody else. But I wouldn't say we're an observability vendor per se. Yeah, it's the reason why I ask that question is we have a lot of developers who listen to the show, not just simply entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs coming here to think, what's Evan doing? How's he helping, you know, Influx Data lead and win? But, you know, from a technical standpoint, I think the lines between, say, a Grafana dashboard or the things that Grafana is doing around Big Tent, it's challenging to look at Influx data and what y'all are doing as well. And how do you differ? 
And that's the way I would differ them is I would say it seems as though Grafana is focused on the Big Ten philosophy, not just simply their own brand products, but also observability as it relates to DevOps. Whereas Influx Data, Influx DB, Telegraph, all the different ways, I mean, you're used on Cisco routers and sensors inside of big old data centers. You're used on the edge with your, maybe your Apple Watch or whatever, or your Tesla Powerwall or whatever. All these different, you're built for metrics at large than just simply, and I don't mean simply as a negative, but simply a sliver, which is DevOps. And that's how I would say the difference. And it hadn't been that clear to me until recently how how you're very similar, but also very different. Yeah, I think that's well said, actually. That's, that's happy well said. I, I'm not sure I could have said it better myself. And for you to see that is dashboarding is not the core of our stuff, right? Right. The dashboard is important in our world, but it's only one component of the visualization engine. People build, build all of that. And we also, you know, our objective in the world isn't to compete directly against Datadog or... or or New Relic, our, our objective in the world is find developers who want to build time series-based applications and then provide the whole platform to them to do that. Mm-hmm. The collectors, the engine, the scale, the UI sorts of stuff, the configuration. And particularly in the cloud, you know, not even the servers, just dump it in and start working with it. That's our view is, that's our audience. And so we love DevOps people. But we, we lean a little more towards dev, the dev side of that. <laughs> and what's too, what's interesting, too, is that uh, is that you tend to be sort of hidden in the greater details, so to speak. You know, whenever uh, let's say I'm a let's say I'm in a data center and I'm using the Cisco platform, for example, and I'm just familiar with the case study around that because also Influx is one of our sponsors. So I've spoken about this in particular in some of our ad spots. and I've had the chance to actually speak with some people at Cisco around their usage of InfluxDB and Telegraph and how that all works. But, you know, my, my, my eyes have been open in terms of how you operate. What's interesting is how I could be a customer of Cisco and I could be on their, their data center platforms and whatnot and be using Influx and not even really know that I'm using InfluxDB because the way that you've designed your business, your technology is to, is to almost be behind the scenes. You know, your brand isn't out there saying, hey, Influx Data, Influx Data. It's just sort of like, here's a great tool for developers to use. That's exactly, that's the audience. Now, listen, we want people to know that we're behind the Tesla power wall. We want to know that we're in that sort of stuff. But that's not the prime issue. The prime issue is, do the developers know? Do they know the tool set to turn to? Do they feel comfortable taking that tool set from job to job and building around it? Do they feel powerful when they're using it? If that, if that happens, everything else works out just fine. Mm-hmm. Everything else works out really just fine. And so that's our orientation is it's almost like you're, you're okay being, you want to be anonymous in your hometown. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I suppose. You want the people to know about you who need to know about you, and you want them to really like you. Mm-hmm. So the people, you know, hopefully the people at Salesforce, people at Google, people at Cisco who build around our stuff, they know us. They like us. The rest works out. This episode is brought to you by Snowplow Analytics. Snowplow is the behavioral data management platform for teams. Maximize the value of your behavioral data using Snowplow Insights, a managed data platform that's built on leading open source tech as leveraged by tens of thousands of users. 
capture and process high quality behavioral data from all your platforms and products and deliver that data to your cloud destination of choice when marketing needs to make data informed decisions, when product needs next level understanding, when analytics needs rich and accurate behavioral data, Snowplow is the solution for data teams who want to manage the collection, processing, and warehousing of data across all their platforms and products. Get started and experience Snowplow data for yourself at snowplowanalytics.com. Again, snowplowanalytics.com. How do you factor in the community aspect since you mentioned the a prime component isn't just simply, you know, where you can monetize, but how, how does Influx Data specifically look at community? How do you nurture and embrace aspects of open source and aspects of community? Like, how does that play out? So obviously we have the normal sort of setup where we have a team of developer relations, a community manager, you know, the different channels that people can communicate with us, the different, you know, the GitHub and the PRs and all, all, all that sort of stuff. But we track the community, the size and the growth, and it's been quite healthy now for four or five years and continues to grow. And we try to pay attention to it. If you notice when we do our, probably don't, we do a lot of education stuff. When we do our influx days, it's mostly focused around the community. It's just always been sort of sort of core to us and particularly the contributors. And now in IOX where we're we're participating in other communities in bigger ways than we ever have, like the Apache Arrow community and the data fusion community, you know, it just is a richness to it that we just like as a company. And so mm-hmm. could we do a better job? Yeah, we always feel like we could do a better job. But in general, I think we do all right. Gotta celebrate those wins, Evan. Yeah, yeah, I know. You can I knew you were gonna say that. So. <laughs> I know once it's uh, ingrained, it's challenging to see things a little differently, but hopefully when you step away from this, the next time you have a win, I want you to think, once you hear my voice, <laughs> celebrate the wins, Evan. I'm actually going to call you out the next time we have a win and make you part of the company celebration. Please. That'll be awesome. I mean, and really celebrate those wins. That's, it's so much fun. You know, it's encouraging. I guess on that note, then what are some big wins that you've had? I mean, this is six years now you're CEO at Influx. What are some of the big wins? Call Two out, three out, whatever you got. What's some of the big wins? So a couple. There's a couple of obvious wins that would be headline wins, but then a couple of the obvious. So, so headline wins are the company's grown successfully every year and done really well. So that's a big win. You do that. Two is we've been able to raise money at compelling valuations so that we're able to continue to grow and fund the, the business. I think it's a big win to get this cloud native product out there and successful. That would just feel really great. And it's sort of people are using it, people are signing up, and it's happening. It feels so good. And that actually is something I actually do feel because I can track those numbers every day. And, you know, in a normal enterprise sales cycle, you can't do that. But in this kind of mm-hmm. cloud-native world, I can see how many how many queries are happening today on the platform. You just, you know, all the billing metrics and that sort of So that feels awesome. I think it's a pretty big win. I have a really great executive team. I think it's a pretty good win to surround myself with people who are, and I mean this in not of self-effacing, people who are who are smarter than I am. And we have a really great culture that I think that I might not have appreciated when I was a younger CEO, but really appreciate now the quality of people that I feel surrounded and honored to work with. That's a huge win for me because 
at the end of the day, these things are all about relationships, mm-hmm. you know, and, and consistent with what I said about, you know, the enrolling or the selling of things. They're about the relationships you build. And I just feel honored. I, mean, I, just, you know, I know that sounds kind of corny, but I should also say, you know, I, I have a really great group of investors around the table who I generally enjoy spending time with. And that's a no small thing. Not to say that all board meetings are fun, but I generally, you know. <laughs> in regards to relationships, you're definitely speaking my language. And, and I don't think that sounds cliche at all because, because I'm a podcaster by trade now. We were saying before the call, I've done things other than just simply podcasting, as you might know. But one thing I get to say a lot is we came for the tech, but we stayed for the humans. <laughs> and I think, you know, just so often is it about relationships, you know, because at the end of the day, the reason why I have these calls here on Founders Talk and the why we have these conversations is I genuinely want to know about your life. I want to know what you've done. I want to know what matters to you because I really care. I really want to care. And I want to do that for a lot of people. And so we show up and that's a part of relationship. You can't just transaction your way to success. Just so often, like, especially as CEO, you have to do a lot of selling, which means you you tend to be transactional often. But I think if we can sort of like take a, a couple clicks back and be relational and think about the transaction, but more about the relationship involved, that's the win. You know, I wasn't expecting this, Adam. I think that's extremely well said. I think that's I, I particularly like I came for the tech and I stayed for the humans. Like, I feel like it's almost. Yeah. I haven't heard that. It's really well said. I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, very few things are transactional. I mean, it appears that whole process of enrolling all these folks, they're not like they're enrolled or not enrolled. It's a constant revisioning, retest storytelling, resharing. And you put a lot of yourself into the role. And so being the CEO, you put a lot of yourself in the role. Yeah. And sometimes that's, you know, for better and worse. Is there any part of the role for you, current or prior, that you can speak to? Can you speak to the aspects of, of the isolation that a CEO, like some of the decisions you might have to make, some of the things you have to do where you because of the knowledge you hold about the future or the vision, and we could speak to the way you, you lead and vision as well, but I'm curious if there's anything that's challenging from an isolation standpoint that you've encountered in your, in your journey. Yeah, I think I don't think you hear that a bunch about CEOs. And so over the years, I've been part of different CEO groups where other CEOs and we share stories and it's been super helpful and I'm part of one now and I really enjoy it. I think the thing... I don't want to over-dramatize it because it's not worth over-dramatizing. But the thing about this role is you never put the ball down, right? You're always carrying the ball every weekend. Always, yeah. You just never put it down. You may not be working all the time and you're not, but you just it, the, you never ball never puts down. And so if it's you're thinking about the next quarter, the next month, the next day, the next set of decisions and so so the few times in my career, you know, when I did take those long breaks and the ball goes down, like it's pretty relieving. And so then you're aware of that, like, okay, I'm carrying all the time. Now, obviously, it's a lot of benefits. So I'm not overdramatic. You know, I don't, I do not have a hard life in the, in the large, in the larger scope of things in any way, shape or form. But you're aware that there's a constant kind of weight that you carry around if you take the job the way it is. And the weight is not just numbers, it's people. Mm-hmm feeling that, that obligation and that, that dynamic. But yes, it can be, it can be isolating. Over this weekend, my example of always be dribbling or not putting the ball down as, <laughs> as, uh, as you said, 
was I was just washing the dishes and I shared an idea with my wife and and it was not at all work o'clock. It was definitely not think about day job, think about this business. And, uh, and I just shared this idea with her because she's she's my partner, you know, so I always share things with her and she gives me so much wisdom, really, and uh, more than I deserve. And she's like, are you always on right now? Are you always on? Is that I forget exactly how she framed it, but it was basically like it reminded me when you said you never put the ball down. It was like that. It was like I was washing dishes. We were hanging out. She was folding clothes and we were hanging together after the kids went to bed and we were just sharing ideas and whatnot. But I like to wash dishes at our house. I, I'm, a, I'm the dishwasher at our house <laughs> and people are always surprised by that. And so I just get in my mind and think and I didn't have the ball down. I was carrying it and I was just it wasn't work o'clock, but I was thinking about just an idea. At least you're talking to your wife about it. That's great. Yeah. I think my sort of fail is sometimes when I come home, like I'm so tired of thinking about it myself. I don't want to talk to anybody about it. Mm. So I think that's good. So I've actually had to work on that side. Yeah. Because my wife is also, she runs a nonprofit and so she's head of something too. And so we end up, we could spend, you know, all day talking about work. And so we try to structure that time now. It's worked out really well. You mentioned having kids earlier. You said, I think you said a 15 and 16 year old, as did you say? Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned wife now. She's head of something as well. Tell me about family to you. What does family mean to you? How does it play into your ability to show up every day? Uh, it's everything, man. Just put it that way. It's, it's everything. So it's the foundation. It's the stability. It's the, it's the reason for all of this. And when we're clear about that as a company too, mm -hmm. we're really clear about that as your families come first. Is that we understand your families come first. And so if you need, you know, I didn't talk about it as accommodations or whatever. You just, your families come first. And so for me, that was not true when I was single and I started a company out of my house and there were 11 people working out of my house. That was not true. I didn't kind of understand it all. But the moment we had kids, I was like, okay, this is very different. And I'm different as a result. Mm -hmm. What I do with my kids, what I do with my wife and my family is the most important thing to me. My role as a CEO is, is important, but not, not at the same level. I'm not supposed to say that, am I? <laughs> no, no, you absolutely are. There's, there's no wrong answers here. The reason why I say that is because the reason why I produce this show isn't to make a show that is something that people necessarily listen to because they get the perfect sound bites. I want the raw, real approach to what it takes to to be a leader, to lead the decisions that go into that. And, you know, the reason why I also answer you that question is because I can, I can compliment it. You know, for me, my family, as you probably can tell with washing dishes, hanging with my wife, I mean, that's, that's everything to me. I wake up every single day excited about what I do, but my family comes first. And even so much that, you know, that I, I tend to have to make choices that limit my business's ability because of the things that matter more to me than the business itself. You know what I mean? Like, because we have certain limitations in our lives, you know, we want to live in this place where we live at, you know, there's certain criteria that we have set for our life. There's certain things that essentially becomes immediate no's in our business or not right now is at least because of certain family constraints we've chosen. My business has inherited constraints and I've got a business partner that has very similar alignment when it comes to family. But, and I love talking about that aspect because too often do we go to work and it's just work and then we separate work from life, you know, work from family. I think, you know, every day I bring my family with me to work, 
I mean, I'm, I won't be surprised here in just a few minutes. My my son's coming home from school. <laughs> he might drop in on this Founders Talk. I, I hope not because I like to keep things flowing. But if he does, I'm going to say, come see out of heaven, you know, and he'll probably say hi. And That'd be awesome. He's never made a cameo yet, but he definitely has made it into a few meetings with me. That's for sure. So, I mean, family is such a critical component and almost no one, not, not too often do you hear people like go on about why they are the way they are at their role because of their family and explain that in detail. Yeah, it's, um, you and I are on the same page. Adam. And you try to encourage that with other folks too. It's like, I think it's one of the reasons why we're able to draw some of the talent is we're clear about that. Mm-hmm. We're clear about like at a company like ours, what we say is, listen, we want to build a strong community, but we don't want to pretend to be your family. Yeah. That's a different role, but we want to be a community. We want you to respect each other. We want you to approach stuff with humility. We want you to have fun, but we expect you to have a life outside of work. Yeah. And it's not about work-life balance or not. It's about we expect you to have a life outside of work. Yeah. Because we do. Because I do. Yeah. And it's your fuel. I know for me, my if something happened to my family, it would be super challenging for me to show up in the same way. Yeah. My family is my fuel. And by the way, if we work together, I would, nobody would expect you to. Right? <laughs> we get it. Yeah. You know, but in terms of what switching from family to work, I'd say what thing keeps me going at work is, 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 and I don't know if you feel that with you, but maybe it's the podcast itself, but I'm inspired by the people I work with. Like, that's my inspiration. Like, when somebody does something like you're amazing or you figure that out or this analysis or that sort of thing, you're like, wow, that was really freaking sharp. Those are the things that get me going. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that make sense. So coming back to why it's a people-oriented thing, you know, I came for the tech, but I stayed for the humans. That is so perfect, man. Nice. Because that's exactly the way it works for me is the humans cause me to stay. Yeah, that's uh, that's what it's all about, man. That's, that's for sure. You'd mentioned, again, humility, and I didn't get to go into some of the values you mentioned with Influx Data. What are some of the values? You mentioned humility. So what are some of the other values that sort of are pillars to your culture? So there are five kind of core values to the company. And, and by the way, this wasn't something, it's not a dorm room poster. We didn't sort of put it up and say, these are them. When we had the first 20, 25 employees, we, we started with a process that said, what do you love about being here now? And what do you feel like you need to be successful? And then we post, we got all that input. We had groups, small groups, and then we post process that and that became the value. So they're, they're, um, they won't change. They're part of the fundamental who we are. And so we're not arrogant. We're humble. We face up. We learn quickly, all that sort of stuff. We value, um, the second is failure is okay. We want you to fail fast and do it often. I'm not quoting these exactly. The third's around really diversity. We respect who you are, wherever you're coming from. We want to be inclusive and this be a safe place for people to work. The fourth is we get stuff done. We just get stuff done because we get a fair amount of satisfaction from getting stuff done. And lastly is that commitment to open source. Mm-hmm. It's part of every interview process that we join for folks. And my mine and the rest of my teams is we want to be held accountable for it. And people have held me accountable for when they didn't think I was acting in that way. And I offer that up pretty continually is I want to be held accountable that, that I'm true to those values. Yeah. And I'm not interested in them being dorm room posters or website things. I'm interested in them being alive. You know, values are something that really, they give you, um, I guess, constraints and maybe even some freedoms within it too, because you mentioned the interview process or joining the team. You know, if you don't embody some of these things or these don't resonate with you, 
you're probably not going to get success here or see the success you want from this place because if you can't approach these things humbly or get things done or some of the other values you mentioned, you're probably going to have a challenge doing what you want to do here. It's a velvet rope, you know? It's like getting in. It's a velvet rope. And I want to be clear, that that doesn't mean that you're creating a cult, right? We've got a lot of heterogeneity, right? And it just means we're asking you to, you know, these values are important to you as they are to us. Like, this feels like a place you want to be. What about, uh, you mentioned CrossFit and early days with Paul and that <laughs> resonance there. Is there any other particular habits or principles that are sort of crucial to... Oh, yeah. Do you have a morning routine? Do you have a certain way you go to bed? Give me some examples of like things that you do that are consistent for you that shape your objectives and your abilities and the way you show up. Yeah, that's that's pretty straightforward stuff for me. Yeah, I have a very specific morning routine that I don't really vary very much. And, you know, I try to get a good night's sleep and I, you know, I measure that. Because I'm in, you know, because that's what I do. With sensors and influx data. Right, because it's sensors and influx data. And so I measure it and I track it and I try to get a good night's sleep and where I'm not. I spend, you know, I work out about an hour and a half every morning. Nice. And I pay a lot of attention to like how and what. And and it was CrossFit, but after COVID, we ended up building a small home gym of, you know, stuff. And so I got my whole routine. And then I try to get at least 20 minutes of meditation during the course of the day. We have, as a company, we have a daily stand-up every day, the whole company. And we usually get 75 to 80% attendance every day. And it's, it's nine minutes, it's on and off. We see each other, there's a couple of jokes. Somebody gives an update on something. There's a word of the day. We introduce new employees and then we're off. You'd be surprised at how effective that is in just sort of holding the fact that you're part of something bigger than yourself. And we've done that ever since the beginning when we we when we had an office in San Francisco and we were, we were probably still 70% remote, but now we're 100%. And so that's held us really well. And that's part of my routine. I make pretty much 90 to 95% of those meetings. And that's, you know, and then I try not to Zoom myself to death. Mm-hmm. Or, or podcast yourself to death. The nights are to let my kids abuse me for a while and make fun of me mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And... and and then we start again. Yeah. What about meditation for you? How do you, you said over the course of the day, 20 minutes over the course of the day, do you have certain moments where you... I try to get it first thing after my workout, but some days when I've got earlier meetings, I can't get there. I get up super early, like mm-hmm. 5.15. But sometimes when I have earlier meetings, I can't get it. And so I'll try to find point during the day when to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, and that's been very helpful for me. It wasn't something I... Something I've been doing the last seven or eight years. Part of this is also stress management, just how you want to, how I want to live in the world. Is how did you learn some of these things? Did you just do them? Some of the things you you do in your day, like the meditation. You know, obviously the stand-ups is something that people do pretty ritually through the course of a work day. But how did you learn these things work for you? Like, what is some of the feedback process that you get that that says, okay, I got to meditate at least twenty minutes every day, or I got to do it right after I work out? Like, how do you know that's working for you? Give me some examples of. How it plays out. So I'm always curious about this. And so I'm a, I view myself as an aggressive, curious learner. Like I'm just always sort of playing at the edge of stuff, trying to figure it out, whether it's things like nutrition or health or meditation or that sort of stuff. And that's only gotten more true as I've gotten older, as opposed to when I was younger. So the exercise process has always been part of my life is I just feel better. And so I do it. Like it's that simple. It's not, not even confusing. 
but the other stuff, eating better, sleeping better, all that sort of stuff, that's, you know, that's stuff you just sort of, the very, as you get older, the variation that you get to have gets sort of, sort of narrower. That ability to, you know, stay up late with your friends and then get, you know, hit the work in the morning. It's just, just not as effective and it's not as much fun. And so you just learn more about yourself and you just think, you know, that, that's, that's what works. So the variation narrows. But the curiosity continues. So I'm a, I'm a crazy podcast listener. Almost all of my workouts, I get an hour and a half of podcast listening every morning. And so yeah. I'm always plugging through different stuff. And so that's why I listen to you and Paul and Adam Jacob when you guys have died. So, you know. Very cool. Yeah. Give some plugs. What other shows have you listened to? What are some of the staples for you? What's in your, what's in your must-listen list for podcasts? You know, I listen to The Daily regularly from The New York Times. You know, I listen to Tim Ferriss' podcast. Occasionally, I'll listen to Joe Rogan. I'll listen to... Um, I listen to Sam Harris religiously. Um, Dr. Peter Atia mm-hmm. who talks a lot about nutrition and health. I don't know. Do you know these? any of these? So, yeah. I know Sam Harris. I know Joe Rogan. I know Tim Ferriss. Yeah, so you know. Uh, the Daily is new to me. Yeah, The Daily is just sort of, it's the New York Times. A catch-up, yeah. Half an hour story. And so, what's nice is I'm listening to the news less and less and more to just general topics, I find. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I feel you on that. Yeah, I, I like digging into some of the some of the habits. It's a new thing that I'm trying to incorporate into the show because I, I never really dig into the habits, but I figure like there's a routine to everybody. Like even if you don't have a routine, you have a, an unroutine basically. <laughs> but, you know, what is it that you do that there are some like staples for you that make you, you know, that kind of shape the different things you got going on. But uh, yeah, I didn't expect you to ask me about those, but I noticed you were talking about James Clear and some of the micro habits and that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's a, I'm kind of a systems guy. Like I like having, you know, and that was true of climbing years ago. And, you know, I like having my systems down. So I know it gives me a lot of freedom if I have my systems down. So I like having a system. I like organizing around a model. And so it helps. It's all about mindset, really. I think to to excel, you have to have a mindset that's capable of excelling. You know, and you can iterate towards this, too. You don't have to have, like, the perfect mindset or whatever it might be. But it, it definitely is about mindset. An example of this that I can share and this may not be the perfect example, but I, I listened to something that Simon Sinek said recently, and he was sharing an example where he had just done this marathon, and it wasn't like he's a marathoner. He just happened to do a marathon with a friend. And at the end of the marathon, there's sponsors, typically. And at the end of this one, there was a sponsor who was giving out free bagels. And he said to his friend, hey, there's free bagels. And the guy's like, well, there's, just a, there's a big line. I can't go get that, I can't go get that bagel. There's, there's a big line. I don't, I'm not interested in the bagel because there's a big line. And Simon's like, but there's a free bagel. And his friend's like, well, but there's a long line. And he says one more time, but it's a free bagel. And the guy's like, well, there's just a big line. So mindset for me is like, okay, sometimes you you see the obstacles only that prevent you from getting to where you want. And then sometimes the mindset is you can just see what you want and you go get it. And I think there's a lot in routines. There's a lot in the way you think. And there's a lot in in systems that that help you shape a mindset to do what you want to do and to accomplish the goals you want to accomplish. And speaking of goals and, and future thinking, I'm curious if there's anything on the horizon, what's on the horizon for you or for influx data. That's something you can share on the show. What's upcoming. What's coming soon. So obviously this, the, the commercialization of IOX, we're pretty excited about that. It should power our cloud stuff towards the end of the year. So we're excited about that and some of the more open source and some of the things we're doing there. Um, the team is growing, and so 
I've added two new execs that are about to get announced, and so I'm super excited to onboard those execs and, and enrich the team. That's most of it. Mm-hmm. No big deal. IOX is no big deal. Execs are no big deal. No, but that's just, and I'm so, <laughs> I'm just so excited about the progress of our cloud products, but mostly I'm excited like hearing what the customers are saying about it. So that's just, yeah. that's the stuff. It just, it feeds me. That kind of stuff feeds me. Yeah. I'm less oriented towards end goals than I am about process goals. Well, then you should definitely be a celebrate the wins kind of person because process is all about the wins. I know. Right? Yeah, I know. It's just, <laughs> You're exactly right, Adam. Exactly what you just said is is exactly <laughs> correct. But it's possible that I'm a I am also a process guy, but don't even celebrate. You know, don't celebrate enough along the, the process. Yeah. So. Well, I know too many people who just see the big picture and they don't see the process. You know, they. It's almost back to James Clear and habits and that kind of idea, right? A habit, you know, or the, a goal is simply a manifestation of the process, right? Like if you can focus on like you do with CrossFit or this you know, daily, you know, hour and a half workout, like that's a process. But some people just think I want this fantastic body or this great mindset. And they think that's the thing. Well, it's really the process. That's why I say that the way I say that. Yeah, I think, uh, listen, you and I, you're, uh, sounds like we're tuned to some of the same, you know, the same orientation. So I would agree with you completely on that. And it's been a pleasure to hear that, you're, you know. Yeah. I wasn't expecting the interview to go this way, but it's great that it did. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you want to share before we go? No, you're good. You've been great. No, you've been great. I'd be happy to work with, work come on your show again. You're a um, really nice job. Adam. Thanks. So. I don't know if you let that out, but um, yeah, really nice job. You've got a great way of doing this. I really enjoyed it. So my pleasure. Cool. Yeah. We're not going to edit it out. It's standing here. This is the <laughs> outro. This is the outro. Evan, you've been awesome. Thank you so much for all you do. Appreciate your what you shared today and your wisdom. Thank you. And thank you, man, for the support of the developer and the open source community and then your broader interest around family and life and all that. Yeah. So take care of yourself. Will do. Thank you. That's it for Founders Talk. Thanks for tuning in. Up next is Guillermo Rauch, founder and CEO of Vercel. Also on deck is Zach Smith, founder of Packet, which was acquired by Equinix and now operates as Equinix Metal to offer global interconnected bare metal at scale. Zach shared so much advice. You're not going to want to miss that show. On that note, if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Head to founderstalk.fm or the Galaxy Brain Move is to get all our shows in one single feed at changeall.com slash master. You can also get closer to the metal and make the ads disappear on all our shows at changelaw.com slash plus plus. Thank you to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder. And thank you to you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor. Share it with a friend. Word of mouth is by far the best way to help us grow our shows. That's it for this show. We'll see you in the next one.